Hi, and welcome to this special edition of the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. In these episodes, we get to hear from everyday people who've done extraordinary things and how sometimes that can be hard on them and their families, which is what this walk is really about. So get ready to hear some amazing stuff from amazing people. Welcome to this Hot Debrief podcast episode. Today we're joined by a guest with a little bit of a different background to a lot of our other guests that we've had on so far. However, nonetheless, an impressive and somewhat you know, hectic work history that has led to the publishing of his recent book. We're talking today to Dean Yates, a journalist of over 20 years experience who's been deployed to multiple war zones around the world as a correspondent, sent to any number of natural disasters that even some of our other guests have been to, like the Bandarache tsunami and many others. And importantly, has recently finished up as the head of mental health for the world's largest news provider, Reuters. Welcome, Dean Yates. Thanks very much for having me, Matt. I'm so proud and honoured to have you on board after having looked at your book, Line in the Sand, that's recently come out. It's It covers so many issues that are faced by the emergency services, first responder policing cohort that is part of our walk and part of part of the uh, the listening audience for this podcast. It, I, I just couldn't believe the similarities of things that you've been through, that, that we've all been through, and, and even how they've come about to a degree. So thanks very much for your time and thanks for writing the book. No, you're very welcome, Matt. And look, you're, I have the same, I have the same uh, feeling towards first responders. I, I just didn't realise that we all feel the same when we, when we look at the trauma that we've gone through. The trauma is very similar and we all have the same symptoms. We've all, got, we've all had PTSD. We've been in and out of psych wards, been suicidal. That makes us brothers and sisters. Uh, makes us part of the same family. It really does. And so I'm I'm just, I'm really hopeful that my book will resonate with first responders and their families and might might provide some, just some answers. Well, it does that. And, I, and it's not only the first responder cohort, but one of the things that I really want to talk to you about today is the flow on ripple effects into the family and the impact on family members, um, particularly those those close family members for people affected by these conditions. And just off the bat, my wife finished your book yesterday and she must have spent a third of it wiping her eyes. Just it was that impactful on her, how similar the experiences you've had and the issues you were talking about is exactly what she's lived for years. So you know, even on behalf on behalf of my wife, thanks very much for putting it in print and giving giving some place that people can go to to find some. And I refer to it as validation. I don't know what the right word is, but when you hear people with similar stories from similar backgrounds, it it gives you that feeling of not being alone and feeling validated for where you are. Yeah, no, validation is spot on, Matt. I, I couldn't agree more. That's exactly how I think. I think that's what a lot of us. Are looking for, um, and then, and and so you just telling me that this book has has affected your wife so much. That's validation for me, because it 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 sort of makes the seven years that I've spent writing it absolutely worthwhile. Yeah, yeah and it's been a long time coming, hasn't it? I've yeah, it's been a, it's been yes. a lot of work, and I, I tell you, the thing that brought her undone was literally on the opening page where where you've written, and for Mary who fought a private war against PTSD and moral injury, two illnesses that invaded and occupied the man she loves. She read, she got to that part yeah. of the first page of your book and she was a mess because she could, oh, wow. she could yeah. feel and like right at that opening point, it, you know, that's what she's lived with now for years herself. So now, Given that I've got to recognise that a lot of our listeners are police, emergency services, that sort of background, there's a lot of caution inherently for some reason built in, particularly police officers to coppers that have, are around journalists and historic mindsets and, and even attitudes of bosses that you, you know, just adopt, even if you haven't had a bad experience with them yourself. But it's always been one of the things that I've been quite aware of, how much exposure 
journalists, photographers, videographers, all of those, that news package that has an interest, a public interest in the events that we attend, how does that go for them? Because it's not only, you know, and, and it's a bit like that storytelling piece where the majority of the news, and my children won't let me play the news around them anymore, but the majority of the news is actually carnage and, and hardship and it's, it's, it's a tough world out there and, and your role, your, your current and, you know, your career line has actually focused on capturing and telling those stories. So with that, I'm just trying to think if, if you could talk to, uh, and we touched on it earlier just a minute ago, but could you talk to how none of that leading story mattered when we're all in a room together? And I know I've had exactly the same experiences, which, which is why I'm wondering how this felt from your side of sitting in a room of people that have very different career lines, but then you start, you start talking about what's going on and it's identical. I'd love to hear what you've got to say yeah. about that. It's it's a good question, Matt. And I got to be honest, when I first went to the Ward 17 psych unit in Melbourne for my first admission in 2016, I was I was really scared. I was really I was petrified about going through those doors. A because I thought this is my career finished. Um I I'd, I'd never spoken to anyone who'd been in a psych ward before. And then when I finally got in there, the first people I saw were a bunch of big veterans, tattoos on their arms, and I thought, and I'm getting goosebumps thinking of it now because I thought, wow, I bet they fought on a front line. I bet they they really uh, saw a lot of action compared to me. You know, I was comparing myself to them as soon as I went in. And literally after about 15 minutes of processing the sight of these big, these big veterans, I thought, what are these people going to think when they know there's a journalist in the ward? Because I hadn't even it hadn't even occurred to me. This thought hadn't even occurred to me at first. But you know, you're right. There there is there is often sometimes some some uh, wariness of first responders around journalists, especially on the scenes of of uh, events yeah. and so on. And I thought, what are these what are these folks going to think of me? Do they think I've snuck in to do a story? Do they think that? I've really, do they even think I deserve to be here? I wasn't even sure I deserved to be here, despite what I'd been through in places like Iraq and the Bali bombings and the Boxing Day tsunami. But what I discovered very early on was that these folks, uh, the coppers, the ambos and the veterans, they just treated me like a brother. They, they it was, it, whether I was a journalist didn't matter. And I soon discovered that we all had nightmares. We all had flashbacks. We'd all been um, had employers that weren't looking after us, and and so on. And we'd all basically either ruined or nearly ruined relationships with our spouses. And so there was such commonality there that I just felt welcome. And uh, at no time in the three admissions I had towards seventeen over over two years did anyone say, even even as a joke quiet, there's a journalist right. in the room. Never happened. It was just like we were all in this together. And I can't tell you what, how, how much that helped me and how much um, inspiration it gave me to just feel like mm. I belonged in, in Ward 17. It, it was really an enormous benefit to me and, and, on my, and, and helped my recovery. Yeah. And I think there's something about that acceptance thing that happens when uh, and I, I don't know exactly whether your experience was similar to mine, but I think you get to that point where, and I love the quote from your book where you've talked about, it's hard to stop falling when you don't understand why you fell in the first place. When I read that, I went, oh, that took me, I guess, into a place of complete isolation, complete, you know, literally just hiding from the world, not wanting to be around anything or anyone. And I had a bit of a similar experience where then I went to a, a, a PTSD group, which was the same, it had military, uh, you know, police, ambos, fireys, all the others there. And that, I think it was that uh, willingness of everybody there to open up to some degree, not everyone's fully open, but there's certainly, mm. there's certainly this, everyone's there for the same reason and uh as a consequence of what they're going through, which is so similar to the person sitting next to you. And it's, I don't know what it is about that, but it's, it's so comforting 
to just be in that environment when you've been tucked away from it all and hiding for for a long time. Yep. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, my first group session in Ward 17, there was probably close to a dozen, all men actually, in this particular session. And I, I'm normally a pretty talkative guy, but I was just, I, I didn't say anything because my first group yeah. session, I wasn't really sure. I felt a bit uncomfortable. And But as soon as these guys started talking about their symptoms, about the impact they'd had on their relationships, and they were very open, I thought, these guys are just like me. Yeah. They, they feel the way I feel. And then one of them said, one of them used the word eggshells to describe his presence at home. And I'd actually banned the use of the word eggshells in my house. Right. Because I hated it so much. Because my, you know, my wife once said, you know, we're, the, the kiddies and I are sick of walking on eggshells. And I just, I, I literally just went ballistic at that because, and, and I don't have a lot of memory of it because I was so angry, but it was like, if you walk, if your family are working walking on eggshells, then you're no good to them. Was how I saw it. But then in the psych ward, you know, literally two months later, all of these guys started talking about how eggshells described the life for their families. Mm. And I thought, wow, I, I really do feel like this is going to help me. Being yeah, well, your focus on the that ripple effect into the family unit uh, throughout the book is actually, you know, it, it's so common i think that story of of how that actually transpires and as you've pointed out a lot of the time that unfortunately that ends up in a in an unviable relationship on either side or both sides that that unfortunately suffers that consequence but you know and there's no doubt about it people suffering ptsd and and other similar conditions are bloody hard to live with <laughs> there's there's no question yeah no absolutely matt and i you know one of the it was actually mary my wife who encouraged me to write the book right. in the first place Oh, yeah, because I, you know, I just said, oh, look, no one wants to read a book by an old journo, you know, all that sort of stuff. And there's, there's enough of those books around. But no, she said, you need to write a book that shows how uh, the trauma has affected you and the family. And, and she was really keen on that right from the beginning, that we, that this book was going to be something that would help family members, that it wouldn't just be about my experiences, mm. but that that it would show uh, exactly like that that little um, tribute at the front of the book says how this illness invaded mm. me essentially, and how and how difficult it was for for Mary to to deal with, and I think that's um, that really has made it. I think it makes it a a richer experience for 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 people to read because it gives it gives both sides and. Uh, while Mary hasn't actually done any of the writing, she's obviously seen it and contributed mm. a lot of feedback to it. And I think that's helped to, to just bring forward, to bring to the open some of these issues that otherwise just don't get talked yeah. about. One of the things that's raised by yourself in the book, and it's not uncommon, is the feeling of numbness and I'd like to hear from you how that presented in yourself and how you recognised it and how it was or wasn't managed. Yeah, well, it's a good question, Matt. I mean, for me, emotional numbness was was definitely one of the most severe symptoms I had of PTSD. And essentially, and I think I think a lot of people will relate to this, I numbed myself when I was covering these traumatic events so that I wouldn't have to feel what I was witnessing. So it actually probably started around the time of the Bali bombings uh, back in 2002. And then the year after that, I, I had my first assignment in Iraq. Um, and then I just, I, I was i was not, a uh, say, you know, a person who had a lot of emotion anyway. But what I did was I just locked down my emotions after the Bali bombings. And what that meant was that um, I was able to keep going back and cover those sorts of events year after year because I'd locked down uh, my feelings. Uh, I wasn't so affected by them at the time, but where the impact came was in in the home. And because you can't lock down your own, you can't have this protective mechanism as it was then, and then just be able to switch it off and be a loving husband and a loving father. It just it's just Doesn't not work possible. That way. And, no. No, and it was it was probably Mary first noticed this actually just when my youngest son, after my youngest son was born, 
which was literally six weeks after the Bali bombings. Oh, wow. He was born in Singapore. And, you know, what should have been the most wonderful days of my life, and it was, but within a couple of hours of my son Harry being born, I left the hospital, told Mary I just wanted to go back to my hotel and rest. You know, I was just so, I was so numb to the, to, to the people around me. What I wanted to do actually was to go back to Jakarta and keep reporting the story of the Bali bombings. That's, I wanted to be back in the chaos. I wanted to be back in the hum of the newsroom and things happening. I couldn't, I just couldn't handle that silence and the quiet and the sereneness and the smell of the hospital. Mary noticed this. And then she just noticed as the years went on that all these other ways that my numbness would, would manifest. Uh, but I didn't really understand the extent of it until I first went to Ward 17. And I had my psychiatrist, I had a social worker explain to me really what impact this was having on, on my family. And I just said straight up there, I said, okay, what, what do I have to do to, to, to change this, to reverse this? But it literally took it took several more years for me to feel comfortable letting those emotions go. You just can't turn them mm. on, right? It, it's once you've been numb for a long time, you just can't flick a switch. And so it took me several years of really working hard with clinicians and thinking about this and lots of conversations with Mary to the point where now I just let the emotions go if they whatever whatever situation arises. But it was a tough thing to work through, and I, I think that numbness is, is one of the things that kills relationships, mm. to be honest, Matt, because um, when someone just isolates themselves, withdraws, won't talk, then it's, it's, it, it really makes the household miserable. Yeah, there's no doubt. And I've look, literally been through exactly the same thing, and it, it's tough when you hear it from your own kids about how present but not present you are at times, and that's so hard to... Yeah, even if you are numb at the time, it's still hard to hear because I think you're deep down. You probably know it, know it within yourself that that's what you're doing and that's how you're living. But you you're probably in denial, I guess, of it yourself. And then, absolutely, total denial. And and I guess for you know for young coppers and young ambos and young firefighters and rescue workers and so on, I think it's really important that they can recognise mm. this. And and this is this is one of the things that that needs to happen is. And I, I don't know how how well it's 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 done within emergency services, but but the education and the awareness for younger uh, uh, first responders to be really aware of this numbness, because that's one of the first symptoms that that usually kicks in when someone has been traumatized and and may have mm. PTSD. Yeah, and as you said, it is it's it's an actual coping mechanism that probably has to be there to a degree just to endure what you're doing and and it's so similar like you, you've sort of said your piece from a journal journalist's perspective but it's absolutely identical that need to put up that shield to go and do your work and then that it's very hard to get that shield off when you get home you can't just t you can't flip-flop that much and that's it's amazing no that's right in fact my psychiatrist in ward 17 she was really good she explained to me that 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 shield was a protective mechanism and and, and that actually it wasn't it's not necessarily yeah, a bad thing, yeah. because how the hell are you going to how the hell are you going to go to these these horrendous events and incidents day after day if you don't have some Absolutely. sort of shield, right? But it's I guess it's then recognizing when it's become such a such a mm. wall between you and your loved ones. That's when it becomes obviously negative. You talked about after the birth of your child, I guess, sitting there stirring, wanting to be back, to be back in the midst of the chaos and be back doing your work, doing your thing. What is it, do you think, about the types of things that we have been to, uh, I guess, over, over our careers that just claws you back? What, what is it that does that, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I used to have, I had a bag packed at home, Matt, ready to get on a plane if, if something happened when, when we were living in Asia. I mean, that was, I just, I loved yeah. it. Uh, I think there was a sense of purpose. There was a real sense of purpose in, in rushing to these events where there was, from a journalist's point of view, right, it, it, might, it was a major news event. And so 
There was a sense of purpose in rushing to these places and getting the story out, informing the world of what was going on. And that was one of the things that really drove me. That's why I wanted to go to Iraq, for example, was I wanted to be there where I could play my part in informing the world. I, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I was never that sort of correspondent who, who got a thrill out of being in dangerous places. I actually felt frightened on, on a number of occasions, and uh, I was very cautious. But I got a real sense of mission, if you like, in being part of a team of journalists that would go in and, and cover a story like the Boxing Day tsunami, a tsunami, for example. You know, we had a dozen reporters, cameramen and photographers up there. And this was an event, this was the, it was the world's worst tsunami. And the devastation and the, the death toll were horrendous. And I think we all felt a great sense of purpose in doing what we did up there. Uh, and that, that makes you push yourself harder. Um, but at the, what happens, though, that, that, that then takes over your life. And it, it just becomes, okay, where's mm. the next story? What's, what's, where can I go? Will the bosses let me go to, to Gaza? Will they let me go back to Iraq, even though I've only just come back? And, and I think for me, there was also, um, and I think this is the same for a lot of people, whether they're in the first responder space or in journalism or other, other sorts of fields like that. There is just something about um, you just want to be where, where the action's yeah. happening and, and where history is being made or being recorded. And you want to you want to be a witness to that, and uh, that was it. Got to the point where that's where I felt comfortable, yeah. and I think even when the trauma had set in and the PTSD had set in, I still want to go to these places because that's where I felt comfortable. Because life becomes very simple when you're covering a major story. You have one thing to do and one thing only, and that is report that story. And I imagine it's, it might be a bit similar with first responders when you have to respond to a big event. Your whole focus is on that. Yeah. event nothing else yeah. matters does yeah, that make absolutely sense absolutely does yeah and it becomes your it becomes a comfortable place to be even if it is high stress high consequence it becomes a place that's probably more comfortable than being at home having dinner sometimes and i i know exactly the feeling you're talking about and i and i know that feeling of being somewhere you know you're meant to enjoy or meant to you know relish in as a as a human as a as a family member but you know, your ear is on the radio or your ears, your ear, you, you, you're thinking elsewhere is, I wonder if I'm going to get, my phone's going to ring and I'm going to get to go do something else. And uh, I know that feeling well. Totally. Now, I would like to talk about moral injury and the underpinning storyline in your book, which was an absolutely tragic event that you explain in great detail. But moral injury, first and foremost, is something that's spoken of a bit, uh, probably certainly not as much as the more well-known disorders, the post-traumatic stress disorders. But it, it's a bit of a tough one at the moment because I don't think it's actually got a solid agreed clinical definition, but it's certainly got components that are made up of things that are outside your moral boundaries or your moral compass. And I would like to firstly understand how you understand it and framing that around those elements where you can either be exposed to it as a as a perpetrator of some moral injustice or a victim of it or a witness to it and I'm I think reading your story is there's quite a you've you've got a couple of those elements mashed into one event or your your uh personal exposure in one event and I'd like to firstly understand what how you see moral injury, and then if you if you would just explain how the unfortunate events that uh, you that happened to you personally fall into that. Sure. Yeah. No, it's it's a good question, Matt, and it's something that moral injury is something that I think is starting to get a little bit more recognition in Australia, but it's still it's still a concept that a condition that that most people have never heard of. The way I explain it is. I think it's you can look at it very simply as when someone's sense of what's right has been so violated that it leaves it causes it has psychological and physical consequences on that person. So 
if something is done to someone or that person does something or fails to do something that really cuts into their moral compass, their moral uh, outlook on life, then that's when moral injury can arise. And it look, it's something that goes way back. It's, it really has its origins back in, in ancient Greek times and, and all this sort of stuff. But it really, it became uh, a phenomenon that was, that was assessed in uh, US veterans who fought in Vietnam. And it was discovered that some of these men had PTSD, but the impact on them had just been way beyond the, the sort of life-threatened fear of combat that there had been a betrayal of these men in Vietnam, say, by their commanders, or they had been ordered to do things like raid villages, bomb villages, and and Mm. deep, deep lasting moral consequences of that. And then when these men went back home to America, they were completely, their their experiences were not validated. They were, they suffered all sorts of community disfavour because the Vietnam War had been so unpopular. And so basically the, the idea is that it's, it's the betrayal of, a, of someone by an organisation or military or it can happen in the workplace or the justice system where someone feels a deep sense of betrayal over something that was done to them. So that's the first, that's the first version yeah. of moral injury. Then there's another one where... An individual is the perpetrator, like you mentioned. So, again, using the military context, uh, researchers and clinicians were discovering that some of the soldiers who, say, have come back from Afghanistan and Iraq, absolutely haunted by things that they did. Killing a civilian, killing a child that they thought might have been holding a weapon, uh, or failing to prevent a, a buddy being killed. Mm. So someone's job might have been to be spotting for IEDs. They didn't see one. It goes off, buddy's killed. That person is left with this deep, searing moral injury because they failed to do something. Or it can also happen, it can also occur just in the context of the horror of what of what some people witness. And uh, in the case of journalists, it was discovered in journalists who in 2015 were covering the refugee crisis in Europe. Uh, and you had a million refugees coming up on beaches across Europe, fleeing the war in Syria. And these journalists were deeply troubled by what they saw. You know, they were having to carry bodies off beaches. They were, they, they just felt the horror mm. of this of this event. And so what what the people who, um, who have pioneered the concept, uh, I think have done a great job of doing is they have, they have captured the moral dimension of trauma. They've captured the experiences and the emotions that people feel that is not captured by PTSD, which is very much focused on life threat, fear, violence. Moral injury, as the name suggests, is all about the moral dimension of of someone's traumatic experiences and how that then affects them. So in my case, uh, two of my staff were killed in Baghdad in 2007 by a U.S. Apache gunship. And... uh, we all knew the risks, right, when we worked in places like Baghdad. I was the bureau chief. My greatest fear was that something would happen to some of my staff. Yeah. And that when that happened, it, it, it took a long time for, for me to, to feel the effects of this, like, like with a lot of trauma, right? It did, did, take, a, it did take a long time for, for me to, to feel this. But about a decade later, I just, all this guilt and shame started to come to the surface. and. Eventually, I was able to work out with the help of some some great getting some great guidance was that I was suffering because I hadn't protected my staff and also that I hadn't honored their names after they were killed and and it, it gets a bit complicated but but in in my case, it was all about failing to protect people that were I was responsible for. you know two men died on my watch, and I suspect this is something that would resonate. In the first responder community, right, yeah. when, when these sorts of things happen, you've got a lot of, when you're responsible for people's lives and something bad happens, there's going to be moral consequences of that. Yeah. And I think the, so for me, it, it just really helped me understand why I was feeling the, 
the way I was. And frankly, that was why I became suicidal in 2016. Yeah, right. It was because I'd failed to protect my staff and the guilt and the shame was overwhelming. Uh, I had all the other PTSD symptoms, but uh, the challenge for me at the time was to try to work out, well, how am I going to heal from this? Well, it's, it's interesting too that you've brought up the delayed onset of that. And that's something that I... Uh, I personally have grappled with uh, absolutely uh, in in some of the things that I've had to work through that happened a long, long time ago that have all of a sudden uh, come together with a few other things and then all the, then you realise the enormity of the impact that thing had on me. You know, yeah, as you said, 10, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. it's it's quite a, a – quite a... I think that's where – and that's where, you know, moral injury has definitely got some similarities to PTSD yeah. and delayed onset is one of them, Yeah. right? Any any traumatic experience, people are likely to try and lock it down, lock it away, tuck it away, compartmentalize. And so, but then it in, in, inevitably with these sorts of experiences, something will happen down the track years, maybe decades later, mm. that brings it back. And and my view is that when that happens, it's it's got to be dealt mm-hmm. with. I, I mean, I can't, I, I literally can't, fathom what it must have been like for you as as the the supervisor the manager of those people and and that happening and i and i know there's a there's an amazing backstory to that apache gunship engaging your journalists and how that came about written up in your book uh it goes into a lot of detail which we're probably not going to get to touch on today but I mean, that's an extreme example of how a moral injury can come about. But I, what an what a tragic event to to have to get through. And one of the things that I know you focus on is the shame and guilt feeling attached to to uh, moral injury. And do you see uh, do you see a measure of that uh, in comparison to your post traumatic stress exposures over the years in a in a magnitude? magnitudinal effect on yourself do you see that measure yeah it's a really good question matt and you know these are some of the things i was trying to work out at the time when i was in the psych ward you know what's moral injury what's ptsd there is definitely guilt and shame in ptsd Uh, no question about it because people who've got ptsd are going to feel guilt and shame over the impact that they are having on their families right so you've got that element of guilt and shame there um but with moral injury, guilt and shame are really the signature symptoms. And it makes sense, right, because it's all about decisions you made or you didn't take or betrayal that has been inflicted on you. I guess the, the symptom where there's real commonality is rage and anger. Right. And we all know that, you know, anger is one of the unfortunate byproducts mm. of, of PTSD. It's the same with moral injury. And especially for people who've suffered a heartbreaking betrayal by their organisation, their government, the justice system, or an individual, that anger, that rage is something that is very hard to deal with because it's so difficult to get some sort of redress. It's so difficult to get some sort of resolution that is going to help heal that person. Absolutely. And I think this is this is why moral injury needs to be better understood, because if organizations have an idea of how severe this can be, then I think we have a hope of trying to improve uh, the way people are treated in the workplace, whether it's first responders or people in office towers. Yeah, I, absolutely. And, it, and it's one of those things that, unlike being exposed to traumatic events in these roles that we have to do, is something that the organisation can fix and the organisation can do better at while they're still sending people to these types of events, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. So, Dean, one of the references I know you've made, uh, well, you talk about it throughout the book, but one of the references I've heard you talk about in another podcast was talking about the workers' compensation system as being evil. And and I completely agree with you, uh, having, uh, well, still enduring it, but uh, having a bad experience in it. And you've, you've also talked a lot about organisational 
issues that we just touched on, but then beyond that, you know, just how badly you can be treated and and how how ill-configured some of these systems are to help people with conditions like we've had and, and have. Can you tell me about Brett? Yeah, sure, Matt. Um, I mean, first of all, the, the workers' compensation is is evil. Uh, it's it's scandalous that this this system is still allowed to operate in this country when it actually makes people's lives worse. Yeah. I, I just know so many first responders and others who've bas- whose lives have basically been destroyed because of workers' comp. When it comes to mental health claims, yeah. I don't know much about physical claims, but it is it's got to be broken and and rebuilt. But so uh, Brett was a a copper I met on uh, the uh, I think it was the third the third day I was in Ward 17 on my first admission and I, I was just sitting down having breakfast and Brett came down and sat opposite me and he just had this look about him I thought he's either a soldier or a copper uh, you know he's about six foot tall well built about probably about uh, maybe late thirties and he just had this this look of integrity about him and professionalism and sure enough turns out he was a He'd been a, a, a soldier uh, for a number of years, served in East Timor a couple of times, and then he'd, he'd become a copper. And um, we're just chatting away, and and he said to me uh, that, and then when he said to me that his police sergeants didn't know he was in Ward 17, and I, I just thought, what, what do you mean they don't know you're in Ward 17? He said, they'll sack me yeah. if they know I'm here and got a mental illness. And I was just shocked. I just thought, are you kidding me? Is this how this system operates? I, I hadn't really had much exposure to to workers' comp or anything like this before. And he said, "Yeah, I've, I'm, I'm here as a as a veteran. Yeah, I've right. come in here under DBA because I can get uh, treatment that way." And he then just told me a little bit about his life and and the work he'd done as a police officer and and the trauma that he'd experienced. And I thought, what is wrong with the police organisation, and when when a, a good copper like this has to come in to a psych ward and is too afraid to tell his his sergeants mm. because he thinks he'll get sacked, I thought, my goodness, there is something seriously wrong with the culture there. And so Brett was really the first, my first exposure, one of many that I had in Ward 17 of, of first responders and veterans who had been badly treated by their organisations, hung out to dry, seen as damaged goods, and then uh, basically allowed to be preyed upon by these rapacious insurance uh, workers' comp organisations and their their hired-for-gun lawyers and psychiatrists. And it really, I was just, I was so shocked at how how this system was punishing the men and women who were trying to serve the who had served their country and their community, and um, that was one of the reasons why I decided to write the book. Actually, Matt, right. was because I just thought someone's got to tell their stories, and if if I tell my story, then in a way I'm helping tell theirs. And you know, when I when I left Ward Seventeen. The first time, I, you know, I told I told a lot of the patients that I was planning to write a book. Every single one of them that gave me their name, full name, and they said, "You can quote me." Really? And yep. And it was sort of like it was a it was a sign of trust in me, but it was bigger than that. It was that these folks wanted their stories yeah. told. They want they want Australians to know how much they are being persecuted, and they were willing to put their names to it. And so when you look at my book, you'll see names yeah. like Brett Lewandon. And um, Stuart Hulls and Sean Callahan, you'll see these people who have said, "I want my name in that book. I was in that psych ward with you. We need to get this message out there." And that, to me, speaks volumes about how rotten the system is when people are willing to to basically just say, "Yeah, yeah, I was there with yeah. you. Here's my name." It was just I found it quite extraordinary. Actually. Yeah. It- I don't doubt you found it extraordinary because it's funny the contact that I've had with defence people in those circles, uh, in in the sort of group therapy sessions and things. When you start explaining to them that insurer-led workers' compensation system and how adversarial it is, you know, I know the royal the, there's a royal commission into DVA for a reason, 
but the people that are in that yep. system look at our systems and go, wow, that's terrible. <laughs> so it yeah. makes you wonder how bad it actually is when there's a royal commission going on into that. But, you know, literally on that note, um, it one of the other uh, interest items of yourself is uh, your your reference to the Scott Morrison government and and that DBA piece. And I'd be interested to hear what you've got to say about the circumstance that we've found ourselves in and actually what the heart-to-heart walk is actually fundamentally built around is the inaction on a 2019 federal Senate report that was done into first responders and, and their mental health. And, you know, it had the only recommendation out of the 14 recommendations in it that was accepted has since been watered down and thrown into a bucket with a whole raft of other things and it's really panned out to be nothing like what the recommendation was and the rest of them weren't adopted and and even the the, the sitting government um, representatives abstained from voting on it uh, from that Liberal government. So I, I'd be interested to hear what you've got to say about the government's sort of role and or inaction in our case certainly and and obviously some of the other commentary that you've had in there about the defence side of the house about what how you see that and whether you see any solutions in it because I know your advocacy in mental health is you know wide-reaching these days and mm. and you've been ex- you've, you've got a lot of linkages across a broad spectrum of of inputs and your even down to your role in helping get uh, presumptive legislation in place in Tassie, which is fantastic, and I really hope it happens in every jurisdiction. But you know, you've had a, a wide-ranging exposure to many elements of this, and I'd be really interested to hear what you, you've got to say about that. Yeah, look, it's uh, to me, Matt, it's not complicated, really. It comes down to organisational leaders in first responder organisations making mental health of their staff a priority, a top priority, and and dealing with this workers' compensation nightmare uh, with putting the welfare of of, uh, emergency service personnel first. What sort of system needs to be in place that is actually going to help these folks recover, get back to work if they can, give them some dignity in their lives? And I think that what's happening in Australia is a lot of these organisational leaders are just pretending that it's not it's not a problem. They know it's a problem. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely clear that they know that this system is not working and it's making people sicker as opposed to helping them recover. They also know that it's a financial drain. And and one of the reasons for that is that because people are on workers' comp for PTSD claims for a long time because they can't get better because it's such an adversarial yeah, system. Absolutely. They, it, it's, it's so obvious that these, these, what these problems are. But on top of that, and this is also, I think, scandalous. And I'm not the first person to say this, but we have a lot of knowledge about treatments for trauma, for PTSD, and awareness raising, but it's, they're not being put into place. And people, organisational leaders, governments have decided that, for whatever reason, that this country is not going to try and, and make new treatments and, and better methods of dealing with mental illness in these uh, in these organisations are priority, and I just find all of this just morally reprehensible. I, I just it really it really makes my blood boil because government leaders, organisational leaders, they're the first ones who will step out when the parades are on <laughs> and uh, let's let's laud our soldiers, let's laud our first responders for the great work they do, but they are not willing to address. The, the reasons why some of them are just getting are getting sick with mental illness and then can't return to work. I just find the hypocrisy of it absolutely, mm. uh, it, it really makes me angry. And when you look at the, I think, you know, defence and DVA is a good example of this, where uh, some years ago, some landmark, landmark research was done around veterans and it showed very high rates of mental illness. Uh, and it it was quite it was it was a real it's, it was a real warning to the government about the crisis that was emerging, especially within our Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. And yet that research was basically buried by DVA. It was not acted upon, 
And then the organization uh, out of Adelaide, out of Adelaide University that ran those studies had to close down when its funding from DBA and the ADF was yeah. cut off. So I think there's there's a lot of things happening here that really, really stink and, and need to be brought to the to the attention of the general public because all the, all the travels I've done around the world, all the places I've lived in, I'm not sure there's a country where our first responders are venerated as much as they are in Australia. I mean, there is a deep, deep respect for our emergency service personnel. You see it every time there's big bushfires, there's floods. There is enormous respect for the work that our police and emergency service personnel do. But the bosses of those organisations are really letting the side down badly and they need to have a good look at themselves. Yeah, well, I mean, you can even see the flow on of that now with recruitment problems into the police forces around the country. They're all struggling to fill classes just to keep... Is that the case? I yeah, wasn't aware of that. That's interesting. What, what are people saying is, are the, is the reason for that? Well, I'm not 100% sure. I, I can only assume that there's, you know, there's been some high-profile um, events with police being killed and it's quite... You know, there's quite a lot of, uh, I suppose, speaking about things like police suicides and the lack of mm. mental health support for them. And I think they're paying the price for that now because I know, I think it's Queensland and one of the other states is actually looking internationally now to bring people from other countries in to try and backfill positions they can't fill locally. So, um, yeah, it's quite... Uh, well, if, if this recruitment, if, the, if recruitment is now an issue, then that is the wake-up call, right? Mm. Uh, because... Young people, unlike you and I, you know, we're probably a bit older, but young people are very aware of mental yeah. health, and uh, and and they know that there's there's not a, there's not as much stigma about talking about mental health amongst young people as it was, say, in, in my generation. You know, I'm nearly fifty five, uh, but I would suspect then that's that's potentially a reason uh, because if young people think that realize that they're going to go into a profession where their mental health is going to be at risk. Yeah, they're going to think mm. twice about doing that. Yeah, and I, and I think that acceptance of the treatment and things that happen to you in those organisations and how, and how, you know, you're a mechanism in that cog that delivers a service and it's tough work and you get treated, you know, at times pretty pretty poorly. I think there's a lot of people now that just go, yeah, I'm not doing that, <laughs> no matter how good the job yeah, is. Yeah, look, at first responders are not well paid either, no, Matt. No. I mean, you guys do this sort of stuff because you're, you're committed to your community and you want to help. And so the very least that organisations and governments, state and federal, can do is to make sure that when first responders get ill, mm. they get the best treatment they possibly can. And anything else is an abrogation of, of, mm. of their duties. Yeah, and even, you know, like so much of the workforce is built up from like full volunteer base too and the, the, like and the linkages to the effect that it can have on their primary employment if they're affected by their work in those roles too is that's a whole other issue. But look, I know one of the things that you're very focused on is the importance of human connection in getting better and or healing as, as uh, I know you've referred to it as uh, quite often, and I'd like to know what your thoughts on how that, how well that is able to be done when we're also tied up in these phases of exiting organisations or transitioning your life, and that feeling of abandonment from those organisations is also embedded in the in the effect of what's happening to the people. Yeah, Matt. I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. For me, ultimately, probably the biggest message that I, I want people to get from my book is the importance of human connection. That, that human connection underpins, it underpins healing, it underpins recovery from, from things like PTSD, from, from moral injury. You know, I got that human connection, that love from my family. And then I ended up in a, a psych ward where there were clinicians there who said, we'll take this journey with you. You know, we're in this with you. And, and I've just, I, I guess I've been lucky to get these sorts of, these clinicians, these people who have opened their hearts mm. to my story, so that human connection has been absolutely critical. When you get a, when you have a situations like where uh, soldiers are transitioning out of the army, or first responders are, have, have been put on workers' comp, it is almost like being sent to hell mm. because they are. 
isolated from their, their former colleagues, their comrades. They find themselves in a situation where they might be in an adversarial workers' comp environment or in the case of soldiers. Uh, that DVA is just something that even if they were to apply for help from DVA, it might take two years, as the Royal Commission has shown, but for their mm. claim to even be processed. So, and this is the absolute critical time when people need that human connection and that help is when they are either leaving a service or they have been put on sick leave because this is when things can go really bad and really wrong for individuals and their families. This is when, this is when suicides happen. And so it's, and I, it's that, that's that one of the things I, I saw in Ward 17, I really felt was this abandonment amongst the veterans and, and first responders there that, that they really felt like they'd been thrown on the scrap heap. And that is not going to help someone recover. No. It's just, it's going to be very challenging, very, sometimes impossible. And so organizations need to understand, emergency service personnel organizations need to understand that if they really want to play a positive role in the lives of their members, they have to understand that when someone goes on sick leave for mental illness, that is the crisis. They are in, these people are in crisis. And those weeks and months after they go on sick leave is going to actually really determine whether they can recover mm. or not. And if they just drop the ball and if they just pretend that let's let workers' comp deal with it, then that is uh, – they've really just abrogated their, their duties. Yeah. Yeah, and look, that's how it that's how it feels from a user perspective on my on my front too. Yeah, I must admit it. So it does feel like you're just thrown into the the uh, insurer pipeline to go through a whole bunch of assessments. And uh, yeah, it's it's a really tough time when, as you've quite rightly pointed out, the one thing that probably would kick you on the right path would be that re-engagement in something valuable, human connection, all of those things that you talk yeah. about. Yeah, just by asking a simple question. How as an how can we help you get better? Mm. What are the things that we need to do to help you get better? And that's that's all I think people want to know, mm. right? They just want to know that the organization's got their back, that there are options, that there are there are ways that they can get back to work. Because the research shows, the research is very compelling that shows that the longer someone is off work for a mental illness, the harder it is to get yep. back to work. Yep. Right? And, yeah, fix and the yet system. the system is designed almost <laughs> yeah, that's... to stop people from going back to yeah, work. It's nearly geared against getting better. However, yes. I, I do have one question before we wrap up today is what was it like being in Ward 17 with Paul Milne? Actually, I never met Paul in Ward 17, believe it or really? not. Uh, he, uh, he must have been there at a different time to me, and uh, but I met a lot of coppers. You know, I think I think – um, there, I mean, more coppers in Ward 17 than other emergency service personnel, and I, I think that speaks to uh, the 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 poor way that they have been looked after, mm. right? Um, I met one copper who came in the literally the day before he was due in court. He'd taken the police, or I think it was the insurer, to court. You know, just the the stories that these men and women told me. Um, of their experiences really shook me up and, and just made me think uh, as a country, we are just we are letting these people down and we're letting their families mm. down. Yeah. And that's the, I think that to be honest with you is the saddest, most difficult thing to come to terms with is that flow on to the family is how bad this system is, is not only affecting the poor person that signed up for that particular job, but it then flows onto their family. Look, I, I know Paul uh, pretty well. He's one of our main organisers and uh, I know he said he was down in Ward 17. I thought he said he was in there with you. It must have been in on around the same time, but he's a, he's definitely one of life's characters and, uh, yeah, I'm sure if I'm sure if you met a few of his uh, <laughs> his uh, compa uh, uh, comrades down there, it would have been an interesting time, that's for sure. Yeah. Just in closing, uh, as I mentioned at the start, this is a hot debrief episode and I'd like to ask you the three questions that um, that go with a hot debrief. And the first one of those is looking back over your time as a war correspondent, as a you know an international journalist, a domestic journalist, mental health advocate and father, husband, 
everything that you've put in your book, what do you think you got right? What went well for you? I think uh, finally listening to my wife. Yeah. Seriously, was was important, right? She she knew I had PTSD years before I got a diagnosis, and then when I finally listened to her and went and saw a psychiatrist, when I had to go to Ward Seventeen the first time, she was the one who said I needed to go. I thought it was too. I just didn't think I was that. I mean, I was suicidal, and yet I think I, I didn't think I was that bad. But she said, "No, you've got to go." She insisted I went back the third, the second time, and the third time, right. and so. I think for for men, especially out there who are listening to this, listen to your partners. Yeah, yeah they've got that objective lens on what's going on, haven't they, yeah. to all those things that you're ignoring and uh, in denial of. So, yeah, that's good advice. So uh, the, the next part of the hot debrief would run into what do you think went wrong or you didn't do well? I, when I look back on my career, I think I just pushed myself too hard. And and that's something that I'm sure a lot of people can relate yeah. to. I mean, I I just uh, for a period of you know six or seven years, I just never stopped. And uh, taking assignments, I went, I moved from Jerusalem to Baghdad, for example, uh, at one point, and and I just never stopped. And I think that if I had of uh, taken time out at, at various points to just debrief de-stress, process what I'd been going through, yeah. then it would have really helped me, I think, um, get some of these, get some of the symptoms that were already starting to emerge and and maybe deal with them at the time. And I think that's, you know, I, I hold myself responsible for that because I had great bosses when I was in the field. They always, they, they really did care about me. Um, but I just kept saying, yeah, I'll go. I'll mm. do that. I put putting my hand up for assignment. So, I think that's just one – that is really the the thing that stands out to yeah, me. Yeah, actually it's quite funny you've said that because that's one of the things that I've definitely looked back at and spoken about when I've looked over what I've done in my careers and wished – I think that I got wrong is I didn't recognise and, and accept how impactful that work was mm. and was always going to be on me and I didn't do anything about it. And I think you know, I'd probably still be there if I actually had have taken that time and – had the courage to recognize. Yeah, you're absolutely it. right, man. I think that's for, for young for young emergency services personnel to, to recognize that. I think it's really important that you can have a long career yeah. in in these organizations, but you've got to be aware and, and look out for yourself and realize when the time is to just step back and and maybe do another role or something that's less intense. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And finally. I asked the question of what the question's normally framed around what could you have done differently or what would you do differently? But I sometimes phrase that thinking if you looked at yourself as a entrant into the journalistic world and you had the opportunity to have a conversation with yourself starting out now, what would that what would that conversation contain? What would you do differently? Yeah, it would be it would be to say, look, at at one at a, some point in your life, you're going to meet a wonderful woman, you're going to fall in love, and you're going to have kids. You need to make sure that they are always getting the best of you. And my family didn't always get the best of me for a long time, and that's that's the that's the big regret I have. I, I don't regret going to the countries and places I. I reported on and the stories I covered and all that sort of thing. I'd have no regrets. I'd do it again tomorrow. Mm. But I just wasn't aware of, of just how much my family were going to miss me when I wasn't around and then how much they were going to suffer when I got sick. And I think for, for people to have an awareness of that, uh, I think is, is, is really uh, helpful. And that is that sentiment is throughout your book. I know it's quite a it's quite a big part of your I think your healing in writing this book is it's obviously a, mm. a tone throughout. So Dean Yates, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Um, author of Line in the Sand. Where can people get your book? Yeah, so it's uh, it's got published on June twenty seventh. It is available across all good uh, for order across all good bookshops. Uh, the Pan Macmillan website is where they can find it as well. 
And it's also available as an ebook and an audio book on the usual uh, distributors like Amazon and others, uh, Booktopia. So it's it's very widely available now for pre-order. Good. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And if people want to actually get in touch with you, how would they do that? Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm really open for folks who want to send me a friend request on Facebook or uh, a connection request on LinkedIn. I think these sort of platforms can be really helpful for just sharing information and stories and also making sure that we, we keep the push going to improve the, the workplace from a mental health perspective. Yeah. And I thank you for advocating for that because I know it can be done a lot better and, you know, people like us <laughs> would have had a better experience, I'm sure, if, if things were done better. Thank you very much for coming on. No, you're very welcome, Matt. Nice to talk to you. You've been listening to the Heart to Heart Foundation podcast. People on their own journey for the awareness of mental health in our first responders. Thanks for listening and please remember to support our foundation by going to the webpage at www.hearttoheartwalk.org. That's www.heart2heartwalk.org or just Google it.